Hey friends, before we get to today's episode, I want to talk to you about unicorns. You know I think we're all unicorns because we have special gifts and talents, and because we're all so special, it's important that we invest in things that will help us get to the next level. In fact, 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com slash startups. that they would be there to hear my why. And there are certain things like they didn't let me date when I was really young and they were super strict about that. And there are certain ways that I had to kind of navigate both these worlds. As many, I think, young kids who grow up with like strict or traditional families have to do. But at the same time, in our biggest conflicts where we'd actually, I'd actually be like, I don't like this or I, I want to push back on this. I always knew that they were kind of listening. And it's something that I'd always felt since I was young. And so what's interesting about these two different things is that while the fear-based stuff felt so generic, like any immigrant parent's going to say that to their kids, the love-based approaches were so specific to me. They would encourage the things that I love to do. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope as always is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. So I have a few housekeeping notes. First off, thank you for being here. I know that there are so many podcasts out there and people are busy. And the fact that you show up to listen to No Straight Path every week means a lot to me. I appreciate all the positive feedback and I love how different parts of each guest story and my personal story have resonated with you. If you are enjoying the show, please take a couple of minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It is extremely helpful. Before I was a podcast host and I was just a podcast listener, I had so many podcasts that I listened to, still do, and never wrote a review. I didn't understand, and now I do. So that would be super helpful. Also, I have been unpacking some of the lessons learned from guests on the podcast and my personal journey in my journal, and I plan to launch a newsletter with my thoughts on life and career next year, so if you're interested in joining the newsletter, just fill out the Google Doc in the show notes. Speaking of newsletters, a newsletter actually led me to our next guest. Today, we have a wonderful, thoughtful, and brilliant guest, Raha Francis, I'd always admired Raha from afar in law school. She just had a glow and light about her. And when I read her newsletter, I just fell in love. She writes about self-love, self-compassion, and achieving a life well-lived. She's so wise. So this is a two-part episode series, and I'm releasing the final interviews from the archives. Yes, like most of my friends from college and law school who have come on the podcast, Raha agreed to share her story on No Straight Path before I even launched the show. We had this conversation about eight or nine months ago, and I'm so excited to finally share it with you all. 
But before we get to today's episode, let me tell you a bit more about Raha. So Raha Francis is Indo-Canadian and she was raised in Toronto. After graduating from the University of Toronto with her BA and from Harvard Law with her JD, Raha began her career in the world of transactional intellectual property law in New York City. Raha soon left the law, trying her hands at management consulting at the Boston Consulting Group and then working in Canadian retail strategy and tiny tech startups. She now lives in Vancouver and is a strategic advisor at the Business Development Bank of Canada, a crown corporation with a constitutional mandate to focus solely on Canadian entrepreneurs. In her spare time, Raha writes a thoughtful newsletter, yes, the newsletter I was just telling you all about. She borrows more books than she can remember to return from her library and volunteers at the local Y, teaching weekly Bollywood dance cardio classes. Causes Raha cares about deeply include immigrant integration, self-love, and what it means to create inclusive public spaces. And what I love about Raha's story is that she walks us through her thought process as she makes multiple pivots, from law to management consulting to business, all while paying attention to the creative endeavors that made her come alive. Yes, per usual, I think you guys are going to love this episode, so let's get to it. All right. I am so excited about this conversation. We have Raha Francis. She is a strategic partner at a bank for entrepreneurs. And as you have all heard, she's done some really amazing things. So I'm super, super excited to dig into your story. Thank you so much for being here. So excited to be here. Let's do this. Yes. All right. So we are going to start with your childhood. I need to, oh, I haven't said this. We went to law school together. That's how we know each other. So, <laughs> so that's all I know. All I know is your law school story. So I need to True. know about younger Raha. Please tell us, how did you grow up? Tell us about your family, about mm. your value system, and perhaps how that informs who you are today and the work that you're doing today. Love the question. It's stuff I, I honestly have just realized that I think about on the daily. And I honestly would subconsciously, <laughs> these questions have just sat in my head for, for decades now. So I, I love that you're asking that, Ashley. And can I just say, I'm, I'm so excited to be here today. Like, this is so lovely. Like you said, we knew each other in law school and we were going through such a particular time in our lives. And we were also exploring ourselves in a very particular way. And to be able to revisit that and go into depth about ourselves and these questions is, is so meaningful to me. Right. So about little Braha. The more I think back on my childhood, the more I marvel at it. What I marvel most about my childhood is the fact that I grew up in in an environment of so much love while also grappling with these ideas of fear-based approaches to life because I came from a family of immigrants. And I'll go into what that means, but Ashley, I just have a feeling that you can so strongly relate to this because I don't know if you remember, but in my, I think in my second year at Harvard Law, you were starting your first year. And I think this was one of the first days of school and you were moving onto campus with your parents behind you or they were just like around helping out. Mm-hmm. And I remember just seeing them, the smiles in their faces and like their energy and being like, man, like these people are full of so much love. They are so positive. And you're also the child of immigrants in a way, right? Am I, am I right? Yeah. So my dad's side. So my dad's family, my dad's first generation, and they're from Guyana. 
So Caribbean influence and definitely a lot of immigrant values and expectations there. And then from my mom's side, they're from Mississippi and Arkansas in the South. Got it. Sharecroppers. And they actually came during the Great Migration to Mm. L.A. So both my parents met in L.A. Um, Ah. Yes, I have both. So it's a really interesting mix. But yes, but thank you for saying that. They certainly had huge smiles, definitely a lot of love. So I can relate to that. And I'm so yeah. glad you met my, everybody met my parents, by the way, during any of oh. every admitted students weekend. I don't know why everyone met my parents. They were just out and about. Trying. <laughs> they're so great. I was like, they remind me of me. And I'm just like, wait, but they're like, how much older than you? But that was the same energy that I recall growing up with in my family. So I grew up in, in Ontario, so near Toronto in Canada, in a suburb. And my parents were both immigrants. They're South Asian immigrants. And my father has spent a lot of time in India, is of Sri Lankan origin. My mother is of South Indian origin. And so I was actually born in Dubai. My brother and I were both born in Dubai and we moved to Canada at a very young age. And so that's, that's the story. Like that's the background. Now, my parents, it's just so funny that I saw the same thing in your parents when I saw them on campus, but they are just so alive. And when I say that one arc that shaped my childhood was operating out of love, I say that because my parents, like they're beings, even before they were parents, you could tell were just so full of life. And I just saw that every day. They were such positive forces to be around. And you notice that when you see someone in a room and it's, it's not that, you know, they weren't negative sometimes. It's just that there's just such a lovely energy to them. And I grew up in a very supportive environment. And I say this because it's funny as immigrant parents, I also grew up in an environment where having immigrant parents, they would often tell me, Braha, these are all the shoulds that you should operate with. This is the funny part looking back because I saw both of those things at the same time. My parents were very loving, so supportive, so positive. At the same time, it was very clear, Braha, like you want to do well in school. You want to be one of a very narrow selection of professions because this is what we think stability and prestige would look like. And there was always this idea at the back of my mind that we had come to a country. We were people of color, like we we could come to this country and we've we've got to establish ourselves. My parents had made sacrifices to come here. And so success would be doing right by them in that way. And and the funny part is, though, that like this fear-based mindset, I, I recognize also very early on as a fear-based mindset because there was nothing unique about it. Any brown parent would say the same thing. We want our kid to do well, have this job. And what I remember finding so funny was that, and I didn't internalize this so much at the time that I didn't really notice this until much later on in life, but that kind of, that very generic kind of fear-based stuff, like do well in school, be one of a few things, was at huge odds with how much my parents would see me as an individual person in the love-based mindset. Because growing up as a kid, I don't recall ever being compared to anyone, even my brother, except for when I was being like a super brat. But, you know, even when there were times where I'd fail and I I was often like a good student growing up and just because I was very curious about things and it just, it was a nice coincidence. That was something that was very rewarded in my family, but I loved reading, you know, I, I loved school, honestly, but there were times where, you know, sometimes things didn't go right or I wouldn't get the grades that my parents expected or whatever. And they would be strict in a way, but 
to this day, I don't ever recall them saying like, why aren't you like this person? Or why aren't you like that person? Or if I said, I don't want to do this, actually, I changed my mind. They would step back and be like, okay, yeah, that's okay. I also noticed from the love-based mindset is that my parents listened to me. And so I always felt that even if they disagreed with me or if they had this thing that I didn't believe in, like, why are they telling me to do this? Why are they so strict? If ever I pushed back, I always knew that they would be there to hear my why. Even if, and there are certain things like they didn't let me date when I was really young and they were super strict about that. And there are certain ways that I had to kind of navigate both these worlds. As many, I think, young kids who grow up with like strict or traditional families have to do. But at the same time, in our biggest conflicts where we'd actually, I'd actually be like, I don't like this or I want to push back on this. I always knew that they were kind of listening. And it's something that I'd always felt since I was young. And so what's interesting about these two different things is that while the fear-based stuff felt so generic, like any immigrant parent's going to say that to their kids, the love-based approaches were so specific to me. They would encourage the things that I love to do. So a bit more on that. I grew up with a very musical family. My brother would play the piano. I just loved to like, you know, I had a lot of energy. I'd just be dancing. And what's hilarious is that despite all my parents telling me, you should do this, you should study hard and get this job and not date when you're young, which I also find hilarious because at some point then there's something like, wait, is this person married? You know, that's what always happens in the South Asian culture, which I find hilarious. <laughs> it's like, how do you expect us to even get there? If literally, anyway, so we were a very musical family. My brother would play the keyboards. He'd been professionally trained. I just loved to dance, but my father was an accountant. And he keeps saying like, you know, that's like, he loves the job. And, but outside of that, he's a poet. And so my brother would compose songs and my father would create lyrics to them that were in Tamil, which is our native language. And it was just like this beautiful thing that I always grew up seeing. And another thing, which is, which is so funny, my mother, she decided to run a band out of our basement, which looking back is like, how do you even, she had a day job, but she just (laughs) It's I like, love that. Honestly, like being a grown up technically now, I'm like, where did you where do you get that idea from? Like she had a day job and I think she just decided, hey, I'm gonna round up a bunch of young folks in our neighborhood and we'll get my brother to do the keyboards, we'll get a drummer. She got a, a drum set, she got some guitarists, like a bunch of South Asian teenagers, and she would like strike up these contracts or just these these events with local community centers and cultural centers and we would rehearse in the basement and then she would just get us all to perform and then she got a group of young folks to be dancers alongside them so we'd all be practicing in the basement on weekends and she was kind of our manager and it was just so lovely because the band itself had folks of all ages most of the musicians and dancers were younger we had some singers who were in their 30s or 40s so I had this in my life since I was maybe 10 years old Being near Toronto at the time and the suburbs of Toronto are incredibly diverse and there's such a strong South Asian presence there. And I really got to lean into my own culture through this band because we were like performing to Tamil songs. I was dancing and and she ended up creating events or like getting us signed up for events across the country and in the States. So, and then she rented us a tour bus where we would drive to the States on the weekends just to perform at these cultural centers. And it wasn't anything fancy. But it was like very much her kind of vision and not in a way that brought together the entire community. And then it became our own kind of vision and we'd collaborate together and dance. And like, 
that's one of my strongest memories of being in a family that operated out of love. Because like I said, the parts that were about fear were so generic. It's like someone can tell you this is what is needed to be successful and or stable. And we'll tell that to our kids because we want them to be successful and stable. But the parts that are driven out of love tap into the parts of us that are so uniquely us. And they let us see when we collaborate with others to create things out of love, the parts of them that are so uniquely them. And I would see all these kids that were sometimes shy that came alive, you know, on stage. And I saw these deep relationships being formed. And I saw my mother also being a confidant for people who were going through their own stuff on the side and didn't have anyone to talk to. And our whole family would kind of come together through these things. And I, I loved, like there were a few times where I came alive as I did those weekends when we were practicing or performing. So there's just something so individual and, and so full of life about operating out of love that I would see in those moments with my family growing up. And I constantly look back to them. So friends, we're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about another amazing podcast, and that's Latinx Empower, hosted by Thaisa Fernandez, which is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Latinx Empower is a podcast that features interviews with top-level executives, entrepreneurs, and innovators from Latin America, aiming to demystify the tech industry by providing listeners with insider perspectives and insights from Latin American leaders who have succeeded in their careers. I think you'll love a recent episode on toxic positivity in the workplace. Listen to Latinx Empower wherever you get your podcast. You just yes. painted an amazing picture of your childhood, which I love. And this coming alive part, I can really see that in you. And I'm not sure if you know this, but one of the things that just really drew me to you in law school was your dancing. I loved all of your performances. I thought you were so amazing. You did come alive. I felt like this energy, it was such a juxtaposition to the cold winters and long reading that I was experiencing at Harvard Law School. (laughs) And then you're this bright light. And so you explaining your childhood has certainly put the pieces together for me and when I see you. And so I really appreciate that. I love that. And I actually, during the pandemic, you did some dancing, which I loved and shared it online. And I would join every class. Oh, I loved it. I loved it so much. So I'm so happy that that was a part of your childhood. I just want to say that. After Raha discussed her childhood and how she was raised out of a fear-based and love-based mindset, I was curious about her decision to go to law school. Was it fear-based, love-based, perhaps a bit of both? Raha explained that the lines would get blurred. Her parents would tell her that she could do anything, but they also told her to get a stable career. She said that she just didn't know what she wanted to do. She knew that she liked critical thinking, so she tried the LSAT. And she actually thought the experience was fun. I thought, wow, I wish I had the same experience. I wouldn't use the same adjective to describe studying for the LSAT. But she also admitted that the application process wasn't easy. She had to take the exam twice. Once she started studying for the LSAT, she said she didn't put much thought into it. She had the grades, the work ethic, and enjoyed logical thinking. So she thought, why not? I'll go to law school. Her dad encouraged her to apply to Harvard. So she did. 
She said she didn't regret the decision to go to law school because at the time it made sense, but what she realized in retrospect that going to law school cultivated a mindset where she would try to and ultimately succeed in accomplishing impressive goals in prestigious environments. She could do it, so she went for it. She approached the first 10 years of her career this way, but then she questioned her why. But what I would run into is, okay, like, is there something beyond that? I should do this because I can. And I should do this because I really deep down want to. Now that's a, that's a hard question, right? And I think that is going from fear to love because it's like, you can, yes, you know, technically the world is like, there are endless opportunities when you think about everything you can do. But often we're told to focus that on things that we should do. You know, like, can I do this one prestigious thing? Can I do this next prestigious thing? And when we move towards love, the question then becomes, okay, but what does Raha inside, little Raha, current Raha, what is she telling you that she wants to use these skills to do? And that requires a very different kind of paying attention to me, as opposed to paying attention to, there are all these huge, shiny things out there that I can do. Because what I realized is, as I kept doing that, I went to law, then I went to the Boston Consulting Group. And all of these were great steps for me at exploring skills and ways of understanding companies that have helped me. But I realized I would get into those worlds and then I'd get, well, this isn't so, you know, shiny. This is just a bunch of humans and everyone's just kind of doing what they can with like the systems that they're given. But what I'd also realized is that I wasn't really coming alive and that's okay. You know, a job is a job. But what I also realized that was funny, Ashley, is that I was surrounded by a lot of other people who also didn't know who they were. And ooh, that was- ooh, Say that again. Say that again, please. Wow. Well, it's, you know, it's, and that's the funniest part. It's just, I think one of the most telling moments for me when I was in these worlds that they weren't right for me was that I was surrounded by other people who were in these worlds also because they didn't know what they wanted and who they were. And it's kind of, it can be a vicious cycle, right? Because it's really hard to leave a world when you're surrounded by people who are not themselves being told to look into who they are. And are not going to be like, yeah, run with this or, hey, look, I'm doing this. But coming into law school, I think I've understandably been around a lot of other people who had used the same thought process as me of like, listen, I'm, I like to think about things. I kind of want to help the world. I want to have an impact, but I don't know how yet. And I was told that this is a safe route. But I think that was one of my first awakenings. So like I would go into these worlds that were high powered and like super impressive, but realize that a lot of people just didn't feel awake. And what I mean by that is like, I like getting to know people, right? You know, as I'm sure you do, you like you're in an environment, you're connecting yeah. with people. You want to know what makes you tick. And if you're paying enough attention, you can kind of see that in people. If you're paying attention, and I would see that a lot of what made people take sometimes didn't come across in what they were doing. And they would articulate it. They would be like, I don't know what I would do outside of this. And I don't want to have to think about it. And there was a part of me that was like, that's all fine and good. But if the most interesting moments that I'm having at work are when I'm connecting with you and seeing your light outside of like when we're doing our work, then that says something about me. It tells me that I want to spend more time being in moments where I can actually connect with people as they are and what they're like coming alive. And so that was just kind of one of my first yeah. awakenings. No, I love you know? that. I want to just 
pause really quickly right there because yeah, I certainly can really relate to that. And I think sometimes I, I don't really like when I'll have meetings and, and everyone's so busy. And so, and this is in every industry, I will mm. tell you, like I've seen this cross in the creative industry and in the legal industry business because our lives are so busy. They'll say, I don't want to take too much time on your calendar. I Okay, we'll get through this really quickly. And it really bothers me because mm. I want people to take five minutes before the call to really check in. I love to deeply connect with people. That's something I really realized. And so I've actually just started to articulate that to everyone that I work with people. And so they know, so now they know, (laughs) tell me a quick thing about your life. Tell me, and and I'll share. And it makes the experience a lot richer. And I've noticed that a lot of us have a lot of responsibilities, financial responsibilities or trying to get through the day. And so we're not remembering how important it is to connect. And I think if we can just try to create those little reminders, it unlocks the beautiful parts of all the humans that we interact with. And so I love that you did notice that because it's something I've certainly noticed as well. And I I don't know, it pains me more because I think we're more alike (laughs) when it's just like so transactional, when conversations and interactions are so transactional, it's painful for me. And so I've started to really articulate like, this is how I like to communicate. Can we, can we move towards this? (laughs) And people are a little bit more open than you would think. Yeah. And I think that's so important, right? Like even just like at the systemic level, when it comes to work, I think COVID has shown us that we are humans and, you know, it's only so possible to be like, this is not me. This is work me without that eroding, you know, who you are. And it's just not sustainable, I think. And I think the other part of that is There are so many ways that people can bring themselves who they are to what they do. And some people are like, hey, I'm maybe not trying to connect, you know, with people at work. And that's okay. That's all right. I'm not saying that there is one way that people have to operate. I think what I sense, and I think that what's so powerful about what you just told me is that like what I sense that that made me think I don't want this for me is when I constantly felt myself shutting down parts of me saying, Raha, this is who you are, but this is not what's welcome here. And I constantly kept going through this pattern and it took me a lot of time. It actually took me more reflection after I'd gotten out of these worlds to fully understand. Like, and so that's why I think it's so powerful that you are, you are doing that. And it's something that I'm trying to do more often in my current world, but reflecting on this past world, I would say Raha, like that, that's not a part of you that's welcome here. So you need to like, just put it on mute for a bit and, or focus on these other things that are probably more relevant to the role. And I think that just kind of got at me and just going back to that memory of being a child, because honestly, that's not the only memory, but it's an instructive one for me of like being in that group with my family and everyone. It's instructive for me because it reminds me of when my light was on. And, and I just remember thinking it's valuable for lights to be on. It helps communities. It helps everyone. And I kind of need to figure out how to do that, have that be a part of my job. Now it wasn't very clear to me, right? Like I think for me, I just remember thinking, okay, well maybe like being a pure lawyer is not going to be the way I turn my light on and add value and create community in the way I want to. And that's okay. There are also some people who are able to bring that into their jobs and are, are also able to find that as lawyers, maybe in different roles than I had, which is, which is fine. But I think that was the beginning of me articulating to myself, this is important to Raha. It needs to be the core of what she does. And I also had an intuition, Ashley, and I wonder if you have the same intuition of like, 
Wait, 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 wait. If this is like where I come alive, I'm also pretty sure that this is one of my largest strengths. So is it going to waste? And this is something that people often say, lean on your strengths, lean on the spice, right? And within jobs, we should do that. Also, I'd imagine that in any job where you're able to lean on your ability to connect with people, it's going to let you be very powerful at what you do, right? And I think I was also thinking about that maybe like, and then I was like, okay, Raha, all right. So then what is that job where you can really lean on it to the max, max, max? And in my Mm. mind, I was like, you know, that's where you'd also really be able to create very... You know, when, when we come back to that thought of operating out of love, what that means is that, remember, like, it's not generic, it's very tied to you. And when we think about value to the world, it also means that we're offering very specific kind of value to the world that's also hard to imitate because it's so uniquely us, right? But that requires us to pay attention to those things. So in my head, I was like, okay, Raha, like, what is that world where you're really going to be able to lean into that? And at the time in law, I didn't know the answer right? Like I didn't know, and I'm still working on it, iterating on it. But at the time I remember thinking, this is a good skill to have Raha, legal analysis, this, this, and this, but the place where you're really going to thrive is going to be that more kind of hybrid individual thing you create for yourself where you're able to really lean into your strengths. I didn't know what those strengths were. And so I tried to just follow at that moment. I think what made sense to me was, okay, what are the other skills that you're trying to build that can come really easily to you too, that can give you a more holistic understanding of how the world works and how you can help it. While working in big law, she tried to pay attention to what made her come alive in that job. She was doing IP law under the M&A umbrella. Although it was a very small part of her work, she noticed that she was curious about why software companies would come to her firm when they were in the midst of a huge deal. She realized that she was more curious about the business decisions behind these transactions. So, she thought about management consulting. She was very involved in the Bollywood dance performances at Harvard Business School. A few law students would dance in the business school's competition, and Raha was one of them. She learned a lot about consulting from her friends at the business school. In fact, Raha actually inspired me to go after my graduate school dancing dreams, so I joined the Bollywood dance team a year after her. It was a fun experience, and it pushed me outside of my comfort zone. I had never done Bollywood dance, so thank you, Raha. (laughs) Anyway, Raha thought that consulting might be the best next step to getting her closer to where she wanted to be. She admitted that the irony wasn't lost on her when she decided to go into consulting because it was the business school's version of big law, everyone working hard to land the same prestigious job. But it made sense at the time, given her interests, strengths, desire to learn about different industries, and salary expectations due to her student loan debt. She also realized that she is a learner and that she loves ideating. She wanted to help businesses grow and figure out how to build as opposed to telling businesses what not to do, which is what she often did as an attorney. She even loved case interviews. When Raha started consulting, she liked the people and enjoyed parts of the work, but she came to a realization. I knew, I think, just as I did in law school and just as I did as a lawyer, I knew very clearly, okay, this isn't where I'm going to feel fulfilled, right? I'm getting skills I thought that could open doors, but I think what was really helpful is the most helpful part was actually just paying attention to, okay, I'm here right now. What are the parts of me that are coming most alive? Okay, fine. And then again, I was being quite logical. I was like, okay, like Raha, the next step is, okay, 
I did care about building companies. I cared about like thinking strategically about how to build them. And and I, for me, the logical next step was, okay, now you're going to go work in companies because Raha, you don't have business experience and you're clearly curious about how things work. And the part of you that didn't come alive making PowerPoint decks and just having to make presentations is potentially the part of you that's curious about actually iterating and helping to build things. And maybe you just want to be able to work with folks and answer these questions in a deeper way. And you can do that by not being a consultant and just working on projects for companies for months at a time, but actually being in a company and seeing change through. There are two parallels here. I can walk you through like the logical steps that took me from spot to spot. And then there's also like this part simmering underneath. That's the Raha stuff. That's just Raha being like, okay, like I feel like I'm in my backpack, just being like, okay, Raha's taking on all these logical steps from law to consulting to working for a company, working in tech. And all the while, I think the most important part, I think, is that Raha in my backpack being like, okay, what is all this telling you about you? Not just what seems like the next logical step. Because what I'm realizing is the long story short after that, I, I ran into a huge visa issue basically in the States. And it meant that I could stay as a lawyer and consultant in the States, but if I wanted to do anything else, I would run into huge barriers. And I won't go into too much detail, but at that point I had, I think like I had to ask myself, like, what do I want to do? And I think a little like the Raha in my backpack, who's just been like sitting around like while logical Raha had been like walking, kind of just like had to sit up and be like, okay, I have some thoughts, <laughs> you know, like Raha, you can spend more yeah. of your time continuing on this path that feels prestigious. It'll also satisfy your visa needs, you know, law consulting, be in the States, or you can give yourself some room to try things out. And I think what's really important about this is that I didn't have answers. I was just trying to create space for myself to find the answers that mattered to me. Wow. I loved this to create the space to find the answers that matter to me. I'm going to say that again, to create the space to find the answers that matter to me. What a profound statement and realization. It is something that I'm continuously working on, and each step gets me closer to happiness and fulfillment. All right, friends, we are going to sit with this wisdom and learn more about Raha's No Straight Path journey next week, so stay tuned. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share this episode with friends and family. And if you like what you hear, please go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate the show. It helps other listeners find No Straight Path. Let's spread the message, everyone, and make sure that millennials feel less alone. There's no straight path in your career and life, and that's okay. It's honestly what makes the journey exciting. So let's get inspired together. I hope you have a great week.